Before we start the show, I just want to let y'all know that if you like this show and want to support it, Patreon is the way to do that. By becoming a patron, you can show me that you want to keep this show going. And we have done some amazing things. If you remember David Thorne, he has not had representation in years. From this show, we now have investigators looking into David's case, and a listener made a large contribution to support them financially. Also, with the money from Patreon, I do things like buy commissary for some of these folks. And Nikki Zinger, if you remember her episode, I bought Nikki a tablet. Nikki has no friends, no family while incarcerated. And so to make her life just a little better, I bought her a tablet where she can now listen to podcasts and have an electronic library to help educate herself. That's what this money goes to and to help keep the show going and tell these stories. And plus, by becoming a patron, you get bonus content. Like yesterday, we had John Brookin's wife from episode 11 come on and give some breaking news in John's case. It was a live Get Vocal where Patreon members were able to participate and ask Karen questions, and we all had an amazing conversation. So we are doing amazing things with Unjust and Unsolved, and if you want to support all of this, just go to Patreon. There are links on our website, Unjust and Unsolved. My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Temujin Kensu. He was convicted in 1986 of the ambush murder of Scott Macklem, the son of Croswell's mayor. On November 5th, 1986, 21-year-old Scott Macklem, a Michigan college student, was gunned down near his car in the school parking lot. It was a bold, broad daylight killing on the campus of St. Clair Community College. Almost immediately, his fiancé's ex-boyfriend, 23-year-old Temujin Kensu, was homed in on. And an eyewitness identified Temujin as the shooter. He was tried and convicted of first-degree murder. However, there's no physical evidence linking him to the crime. And Temujin has at least 10 witnesses stating that he was 450 miles away from the murder when it took place. But prosecutors convinced the jury that Temujin was guilty based on a witness ID from a man who'd been hypnotized, a jailhouse informant who later recanted, and a bizarre chartered plane theory that's never been substantiated. The ninja killer. As Channel 7's Bill Proctor reports, the ninja wants a rematch in court. Since his conviction, a retired officer from the same department that helped convict him has now joined Temujin's team and says the more he digs into this case, 
the more red flags he sees. So why is Temujin still in prison? And who did kill Scott Macklem? We'll get to that after this. So Temujin's case is one of the first ones that I've covered where I really thought, wow, this could be me. I just relate to Temujin in so many ways, ways that the prosecution tried to demonize him. I grew up with my parents being really interested in Eastern culture, my mom with religions, and my dad with kung fu and karate. I grew up playing with nunchucks. You know, I listen to metal, I wear a leather jacket, and I ride motorcycles. And Temujin and I were talking about all the things he misses when this in particular came up. Just walking beyond a prison fence down a road uh, is like a fantasy. Um, I, I love riding motorcycles. I can't imagine having my hair in the wind again. But I have a Harley. Which you oh, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you already know. You know. There's no way to describe it. Yeah, exactly. So you know. Uh, the, the feel of the motor rumbling between your legs and, and that freedom and the wind in your hair and the bugs in your teeth. And um, obviously, I missed, I missed the physical. You know, I've been without that for 34 years. Um, just going out having a slice of pizza. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to sound all squishy now so much for the tough prison inmate, but I love kittens. So. And I also <laughs> absolutely love kittens. I mean, I'm sure you could say, you know, you can relate to someone like this in so many ways. But I just really felt you know, the way they demonized him based on everything that he loves with no evidence whatsoever. And the case also made me think a lot about the West Memphis Three and using someone's hobbies, interests, or religion against them, again, without corroborating evidence. And so it's also no coincidence between these two cases that this was also the satanic panic era and people like Temujin were easy scapegoats. Temujin Kansu was born in Flint, Michigan, May 23, 1963. His father died when he was seven, and he was raised by his mom. My mother was very physically abusive. First, just kind of like a manhandling type thing, and then it was, you know, my my room wasn't clean enough, so that, you know, warranted a smack upside the head. And um, I could go in there and clean the room for four more hours and come back out and, you know, say that I thought I did a good job and have the room spotless. Then I would get beaten for lying about the room being clean, and I wouldn't be able to find anything wrong with the room. Then I was being argumentative, and it was just this endless cascade of reasons to be physically violent. You get, you get used to that stuff when you're a kid, and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have the same effect on you uh, after a while. So when she realized the blows weren't having an effect, she switched to weapons. So she would hit me with a key rod or a leather strap or whatever it might be, and I would just kind of take it. Obviously, we can't confirm child abuse from decades ago. We don't have court records to corroborate, but Temujin says it's because of this treatment that he was in and out of foster care. But that wasn't much better. You didn't have the protections that you have nowadays in foster care programs back in the 60s and 70s. So you could be put into a very, very abusive home, and you were basically stuck there. <clears throat> so a lot of my youth was really having to defend myself, you know, uh, against uh, bullies in one form or another, whether it was at home or foster home. I was also in the uh, Flint Public Schools at that time, which were very, very violent. At about 13, he got really into martial arts as a way to defend himself. We would go watch the old uh, Chinese kung fu films at uh, the Miracle Twin Drive-In or the Capitol Theater in Flint. And uh, they would have these deals, like four movies for like $2 or whatever. And I saw a, a martial art movie. 
and I, I watched this guy just, you know, de- defending and, and perfectly blocking everything that was thrown at him. And I literally said, I want to learn to do that right there. So Temujin would go to the YMCA and take free lessons, starting with Taekwondo, and eventually he moved on to arts, like Aikido. He also started studying the Eastern faiths at about the same time. And I was reading texts on Taoism, the I Ching, the Tao Te Ching, and so on. I looked at a lot of different Eastern paths. Uh, I was fascinated by Zoroastrianism, for example, which is just a beautiful, beautiful ancient faith. And actually, Temujin's birth name is Frederick Freeman. You'll find most court documents under that name. But he changed his name to better align with his faith. Eastern religion and martial arts were his life. I spent, uh, say, eight hours a day training sometimes. You know, when you're young, you don't have to sleep. So I would get up and train for hours in the morning, then I would go to school, I would run, and I'd go to the Y at night, and I would train at the Y. And uh, began competing and winning and doing weapons and forms demos and things like that. Temujin says he could tell this bothered his mom. As I became a more martial artist, I think that was very intimidating to her. She saw me out in the yard, you know, twirling in chaku or using a sword or working on a punching bag or things like that. But I, I did get very good at blocking, which was my initial goal. So when she would start throwing things, now I'm doing upper blocks and outer blocks, and, and that just drove her nuts. Like, how dare you stop me from hitting you? That made her more aggressive. And um, eventually it got to the point where uh, I was probably going to have to, like, seriously hurt my own mother to defend myself because she had gone from, like, rods to knives. And... Um, there was a big blow up, 1979 or 80, and I, I realized what it had come to. And I had to get out of the house. She was going to kill me. That's all it was to it. So he left and went to live with his grandma, who he says was his only respite. And Temujin doesn't pretend he was an angel during those years, to be clear. He cops to writing bum checks and getting in an occasional fist fight. He was basically street tough, but being with his grandmother was as stable a life as he had ever known. I stayed there until I went into the service in 1981. At 18, he enlisted in the army. He says that's what a lot of the poor kids were doing back then, and he did it to further his education. But also, he says because of the way he was raised, he had a strong sense of justice. I mean, I went in the military during the Cold War because I really believed that Russia was coming any day to nuke us all into oblivion or shove communism down our throats or all the other propaganda we were fed at that time. But I still kind of believed in our system. I trusted our system. Just a year later, he wound up being honorably discharged due to an ongoing knee issue. And left the service in uh, 1982 and uh, went to Washington State. Uh, I married while I was out there, had a daughter, Lena, beautiful child. Lena was Temujin's third child. She's an amazing artist, lives here in Michigan. Now, before I get into the murder, this moment is where so much of the prosecution's case against Temujin comes from. Temujin and his then-wife moved back to Michigan and split up shortly after. And then Temujin started dating. A lot. And now I am definitely not passing judgment. But the prosecution did. Their entire case rested on making Temujin out to be the worst person ever. Not just with women, but that he was some kind of ninja assassin, which we'll get to. Now, as I mentioned, Temujin admits he was kind of a bad boy at the time of his arrest. When you're uh, an abused kid, you know, you, you look for positive attention. And as a martial artist, especially back then, you got a lot of attention. And, uh, you know, motorcycle, leather jacket, the whole nine yards. Long hair, tough guy. Not the least unattractive guy in school. Uh, I sing. And um, uh, as a musician, you know, you get a lot of attention. And a lot of that attention came from women. You could be the worst singer in the world, and you're going to be with a different girl every night if you want to. Women are throwing themselves at you because you're the singer in the band. And Temujin admits he pretty much 
was with a different girl all the time. Women like me and, and they would pursue me and I would take them out and maybe we'd date a while, maybe we'd have a physical relationship and uh, either they realize I wasn't the one or I'd grow tired of it or whatever and move on to the next thing. By the time of his arrest, he had four kids with four different women. So yeah, I was very uh, flippant about women. But uh, if you look, you'll see that none of these girls claimed that I was uh, a stalker type. or In fact, just the opposite. It was more of a, well, there's another one down the road kind of thing. In fairness to me, he mostly sounds like an average 20-something-year-old guy. I guess, except all the kids, but that aside... All this is important when we get to the trial, because one of the star witnesses is an ex. When Temujin moved back to Michigan, he moved to the Port Huron area and met Crystal Merrill at a video store in the Port Huron Mall. You know, she came on to me very strongly. She offered to take me out to dinner. We went out in her vehicle. She paid for dinner. And um, we went down to the beach and we had sex and she was gushing all over me and going on and on about how happy she was. Temujin says they dated for a little bit, but... He wasn't feeling it. She was trying to change everything about me. Sell your motorcycle, cut your hair, stop listening to heavy metal. She bought me IZOD shirts like in like frosh green and yellow and pink. This is the 80s. I'm like leather, leather jacket, rock and roll guy, you know. <laughs> she's, and she's trying to put me in, in, in IZOD. It was too much for the free-spirited Temujin, and he broke it off in June of 1986. And she starts screaming, you need me, and I know you're lying about who you really are in your life and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, all right. That's fine. Great. I said, you know what? It's no skin off my back. If I ever see you again, she admitted that I said that at, at trial. And um, that was it. You know, years ago, he he was a younger guy. He had a motorcycle and leather jacket and was out, you know, um, tomcatting around, I guess is the, the way you would say it. This is Paula Randolph, Temujin's current fiance. They met just a year ago, and she says they fell madly in love. Paula grew up in the Port Huron area and remembered hearing about the murder. She was recently reading an article talking about the murder and the innocent man who is in prison for it. And then I, you know, just read about it in the paper and I'm like, you know, I just started reading and researching more and more. And I was just blown away that, you know, my neighbors essentially, um, you know, did this to this to this man for all of these years. And I thought, how horrible, you know, and I thought, you know, does he have good people in his life? Does he have people helping him? And I was just, I was saddened, you know, and shocked. And, um, and I thought, you know, if I, if I can do something to help, you know, update his Facebook page or help him in any way, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. And she decided to write Temujin. And she says this was totally random. The HR consultant has never done something like this ever. I had no intent whatsoever of it going anything like this. I, I mean, if if you would have told me a year ago that this all would have happened, I would have said, you're crazy. That's not me. I would never do that. And um, I mean, I, I, I'm really shocked that I still, you know, looking back that I even wrote to him. I mean, I just I planned on checking in and checking out. This was also good timing for Temujin. His wife, Denise, who'd started as a pen pal in 1991, had died of cancer in 2012. She had been his rock for more than two decades, fighting on the outside to get his case attention. He'd nickname her Amiko, meaning enchantress. After almost seven years of grieving, he was finally open to moving forward. And when he met Paula, they just clicked. (laughs) 
it's just hard to describe him. He's so intelligent. He's so likable. He's so, um, he's just, he's just got this amazing personality and he, you know, he, he really does care about people. And, um, I, and I know he's madly in love with me. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to describe. I just know from my own personal experience that this, it was, it was all meant to be. Paula says she's never been married and was waiting for the right person, Temujin. Paula says that his background with women doesn't bother her either. That was over 30 years ago. He was a young, attractive man. He had a lot of of girlfriends and, um, you know, he didn't really, he wasn't really pinned down to any one of them. I mean, I guess Michelle would have been the, the one that he stayed with the longest. Very shortly after Temujin broke it off with Crystal, in July, just a month later, he moves away to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, 450 miles from Port Huron, with his new girlfriend, Michelle Woodworth. There, they started to settle down. He had Michelle, two German shepherds, a kitten. Listen, I don't want to get off on a tangent. This, I rescued this kitten. That kitten won my heart. She slept on my neck, literally laid over my neck every night. And um, she was a cutest little thing. It followed me everywhere. She would sit on my shoulder like a pirate with a parrot. And he had another baby on the way. That's baby number four I mentioned. And by all accounts, the couple was struggling to get by financially. But overall, they were happy and had no idea the fling he had with Crystal just a few months ago was going to come back and turn both of their lives upside down. On November 5th, 1986, in one of the most brazen daytime attacks you can imagine, 21-year-old Scott Macklem was gunned down with a shotgun at 9 a.m. in the parking lot of St. Clair County Community College in Port Huron, Michigan. Scott, a student at the college, was shot in the back and found on the ground near the driver's side of the car with the keys still in the door. In the weeks leading up to the murder, Scott had actually complained to friends that he was being harassed. Although a number of people in the busy parking lot heard the shots, no one actually witnessed the murder that we know of. A few witnesses recall seeing a tan or gold-colored vehicle with a suspicious driver, and the murder weapon was never recovered. And the only evidence at the scene was a spent bullet casing and a box of shotgun shells with an unidentified fingerprint on it. Scott was the son of the mayor of a neighboring town. His family had money, and he was described as a popular, friendly, all-American boy. He was also the fiancé of Crystal Merrill, Temujin's ex, who was pregnant with Scott's baby. Almost immediately, Temujin Kensu was homed in on. Temujin was arrested a week after the murder. He states in a sworn affidavit that he was surrounded by officers who told him that the reason for a substantial show of force was because they were told he was a cross between, quote, Rambo and a ninja and had poisonous darts on him, which he did not. April 28, 1987, the trial started. The prosecutor, Robert Clellan, brought Crystal to the stand. She testified over a period of three days that Temujin was an assassin and part of a ninja organization and would kill people with his martial arts weapons. Like one time she'd say, oh, it was Father's Day and we, we, we went to blankety blank blank and there's a secret enclave on the water and he's doing hand signs with binoculars to people on the Canadian side of the water. I mean, it was just nuts, Maggie. And it was just crazy story. One time she claimed 
that I jumped like 40 feet out of a tree in a ninja suit and landed in front of her. So when I'm hearing these stories, I'm like, okay, whoa, 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 hold on. <clears throat> Where'd this happen at? Nobody even looked at this when she would make these stories up. The timelines would be just crazy. Uh, she's got me uh, engaged in a high-speed chase when I was at a party in front of 200 witnesses you know, up in Escanaba. Now, bear in mind, I hardly ever saw this woman. By the time she got done with this thing, we would have had to have been together for like three years. She's got like scores of incidents. But remember, I met her at the end of May, and I dumped her at the end of June. She also alleged that Temujin was a stalker. She never saw me, and I never called her. I never followed her around. I never went after her. I moved away, and she never heard from me again. So how am I a stalker? And then, you know, then the story is, she changed the story to, I killed Scott. First, it was to intimidate her. Then later, it was as a jealous boyfriend. Well, first off, there was no Scott in the picture. Now I'm 500 miles away, living up in the UP. That's Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Doing my thing up there, never coming back downstate. Why am I going to kill this guy I don't know over a girl that I dumped and never saw again? At the same time that you guys are going on and on about how I have 100 girlfriends. Crystal also alleged that Temujin would threaten to beat and kill her and that his abuse even extended to raping her. And it should be noted that Crystal was eventually sued by a local police chief for shady business practices on a remodeling job she did for him. In an FBI interview, the chief called her a, quote, pathological liar and said that she, quote, continuously lied under oath. But back to Temujin's case. To bolster their theory that Temujin was Scott's killer, the prosecution brought in a second star witness, a young man who was in the parking lot during the murder. Rene Gobian. Gobian heard the shot and saw a suspicious driver and vehicle drive by. When he got to his class about 10 minutes later, he wrote down the license plate number that he thought he remembered. When he spoke to the police, he gave them a plate number and it did not return a car matching the description of the one Gobian saw. So he suggested that he be hypnotized to remember. And after hypnosis, he picked Temujin out of a lineup as the driver. We'll get back to this. Prosecutor Cleland also brought in a jailhouse informant who was with Temujin in a holding cell for a couple hours and says Temujin confessed to him. And that was really it. Prosecutor Cleland portrayed Crystal and Scott as an idyllic rural couple who were terrorized by Temujin, a criminal ninja assassin from the city. August 3, 1987, Temujin was given a mandatory sentence of life without parole at the age of 24. They did absolutely nothing to find out who killed Scott Macklin. They spent a year trying to get people to say that I was a ninja and I had mind control powers and I could teleport and I had way too many girlfriends. And I rode a motorcycle and listened to rock and roll. And uh, I also had a meditation altar, so I became a Satanist. That, that was the, and I'd sit back and, oh, oh my God, he's honorably discharged in the military. He's Rambo. He's going to shoot up a town any minute now with an M60. I mean, it just never stopped. They took every good thing in my life. They took the fact that I didn't use drugs. It's in the trial record. And they beat me up for it. And officer, what did you find when you went into his home? Hundreds of bottles of unidentified substances. Yeah, just because you're too stupid to know what superoxide dismutase is does not mean it's an unidentified substance. No, I had health supplements because I was a health nut. So, oh my God, he's got a blender and celery. He's going to kill again. If it weren't his life on the line, 34 years wasted in prison, I might laugh at this. It's hard not to with how ridiculous it all is and how much of a smart Alec Temujin is. I personally find it understandable considering how frustrated he must be. 
And of course, that's an understatement. And Temujin has used this frustration for good on the inside. As soon as he entered prison, Temujin hit the law library. I found these old timers, and I'm sure they heard it from a million guys, like, hey, guys, listen, I didn't do this. And I'm sure they were like, oh, Jesus Christ, here's another kid, you know, with the, I didn't do it crap. But you know what? A couple of them listened to me, and uh, they kind of took me under their wing. And so that's, that's, I became a fighter. Temujin would fight for other prisoners with their own cases. And I got into civil rights studies, and I started fighting for guys that were illiterate, helping them write letters, things like that. Started fighting for others and winning and feeling really good about it. He started winning big civil cases. And uh, so if, if I got a guy medical care, you know, that kind of inspired me to go on and do the next thing. If I helped a guy get his religious practice, that helped me go on to do the next thing too. I, I, do, like the, I do like the fight and I, I love the effect of the trees. I love seeing people. Like right now I'm doing stuff for, there's some transgender guys in here. And of course that was a brand new topic for someone like me just a couple years ago. And when kids in here started to identify, uh, they're being terrorized and just treated like garbage. So right now I've been doing that. I'm helping a kid here in my unit right now. In 2016, Temujin also won a $325,000 lawsuit against the Michigan Department of Corrections for the denial of proper and adequate medical care. Temujin's doctors examined him and gave him an MRI and determined that he needed shoulder surgery, but it was denied by the prison system. When he gets out, he even has a standing offer from a law firm. But even though he's been successful in civil rights suits, his own appeals have been continually denied. You, you, you know, you, you start believing again, and then the appellate courts screw you over and rubber stamp your appeals, which they do, unless you're you know, insanely wealthy or politically connected. And um, you lose hope, and then you gain hope, and you lose hope, and you gain hope. And today, things are more hopeful. In 2007, there was a local Detroit uh, newscaster, Bill Proctor, who was on the local radio station here in Port Huron talking about the Fred Freeman case. And there was something that Bill said during that interview that conflicted with what I remember hearing in the office that day. This is Herb Welser. And by office, he means his precinct office. Herb is a retired Port Huron police officer. I was with the Port Huron Police Department about 31 years. Herb was working the day of the murder, but he didn't work the actual case. He didn't become involved until he heard journalist Bill Proctor, who has now become an advocate for Temujin's innocence, contradict what he thought he knew about the case. I was thinking, you know, this is probably another guilty person that's in prison trying to get out. But then the more I kept reading about this case, in particular the testimony, the more red flags kept coming up. And it was a few months later, after looking at these items, that I was starting to become concerned that an innocent person was in prison. Herb is now a private investigator who works for Temujin, investigating the same police department he once worked for. So this is uh, 13 years later now. I've been working on this case. I've put in hundreds and hundreds of hours, and there's no doubt in my mind that Fred Freeman is innocent that he had nothing to do with the murder of Scott Macklin. And Herb's best case for innocence? Temujin's alibi witnesses, who place him 450 miles away at the time of the murder. 
16 of them testified at trial. Around 8.30, 9 a.m., Scott Macklin was murdered. At 11.45 a.m., witnesses saw Temujin at the Martial Arts Studio, 450 miles away. Here's one of the witnesses in a documentary called Justice Incarcerated. You can find it on YouTube. Well, he showed up at the beginning of the class, so it was about 11, right when um, we would have lined up. It sticks in my mind because that day when Fred came in, we were discussing the practicality of the um, jumping back kicks. And I was wearing blue jeans at the time, and we were discussing whether or not Chuck Norris was really doing it, and we found it very difficult to do those techniques with blue jeans on. And these alibi witnesses, one could say, well, are they friends of Fred Freeman? Well, they aren't, uh, in particular. The ones in the martial arts studio, one was a woman uh, who testified she saw Fred in there like at 11.45, and she didn't like Fred. She thought he was a, a jerk, and the owner of the martial arts studio really didn't care that much for Fred either, but they both testified that he was there at that time. That's just about three hours later. There is no way Temujin could drive from Port Huron to Escanaba in that time. It's a minimum of six and a half hours. So in their rebuttal, with his case falling apart, Prosecutor Cleland put his own personal pilot on the stand to testify that Temujin could have chartered a plane down to Port Huron, committed the murder, and made it back in time to be at the martial arts studio. And... There are so many holes in this theory, like no record of a flight. Where did Temujin, who was barely affording to live, get money to charter a private plane? He had very little, if any, money. And the airplane pilot himself testified that it would have cost several hundred dollars to get a charter airplane. And Fred didn't have any money like that. But there was no testimony about how that... He had money to do such a thing. And allegedly, Temujin was seen driving in the parking lot by this hypnotized witness, Rene Gobian. Where did Temujin get this car after his flight? In fact, the license plate Gobian remembered did not come back to any of Temujin's vehicles, nor did the description of the vehicle match any of Temujin's. And the car was not a rental. The plate actually came back to a car dealership in Detroit and was assumed to have been disposed of in a dumpster. The prosecution alleged that Temujin stole the plate and used it on this car to commit the murder. And a note on Rene Gobian's identification of Temujin. After he was hypnotized, Rene Gobian was given a lineup and allegedly identified Temujin. But in 2008, when Herb was able to see the evidence... He also saw the lineup photos, which no one had seen before. And what he noticed was shocking. And there's like 12 differences between those photographs and the one of Fred Freeman that says Pleasant Ridge Police Department. Fred has turned a different direction. There's just so many differences between his picture and the other four that were used in this photo lineup. And it, Fred Freeman's photograph would have stood out so much. I was just shocked when I saw these pictures. And then when I saw them, I thought, how did these ever get 
entered into evidence in the trial? How, how did they ever get allowed to be used with it? Fred Freeman's picture being so suggestive? What happened was, at trial, someone cropped the photos so they just showed the facial view and looked less suggestive than what was shown to Rene Gobian. So they made them look better for trial. Yes, and the prosecutor even told the jury or asked Sergeant Bounds, are these the mug shots that you showed to the witnesses? And he said, yes. Also, in his defense, Temujin never owned a shotgun, and not one person who saw him before or after the murder says he was acting out of the usual. And his girlfriend, Michelle, actually said Temujin was with her the entire day. Here's Michelle in the Justice Incarcerated documentary. He is innocent. He was with me that morning. Mm. You know, he didn't do this crime. We went into town. We saw all these people. But she never took the stand. And if you're like me, you're wondering... Why the heck not? There are those that uh, criticize David Dean very much about his representation of Fred. and But David, I knew personally he was a good attorney. Uh, but at this time period, uh, he did have a drug problem, uh, uh, drank heavily, and uh, it appears was under the influence of drugs at that time. David Dean was actually an assistant prosecutor before, but became a defense lawyer in the mid-1980s. Clients he defended would later testify that they sold him cocaine while he was their lawyer, allegations that eventually were confirmed. David Dean's law license was suspended in 1993 for using drugs while representing clients years earlier. There's many things that he could have done and didn't do. And uh, I don't know if drugs had a part of it or not. Listed in one of Temujin's appeals are 20 points in the trial he should have objected to testimony that was biased or damning to Temujin. Dean had also just represented lead detective John Bounds in an illegal gambling case, which of course would be a conflict of interest. And back to Michelle. Dean knew about her and her willingness to testify. They spoke on multiple occasions. And Michelle was crucial. Not only could she alibi Temujin all day, the only reason the prosecution's Hail Mary plane chartering rebuttal came about was because none of Temujin's alibi witnesses that testified were able to place him with them during the few hours before or after the murder. And Michelle could. So it's unclear why she wasn't called. Michelle was also willing to testify about the truth of the relationship between Crystal and Temujin. She says it was not how Crystal portrayed it at all. Here's Michelle in the documentary again. She would start coming over like every day and she would get really nasty with me. I mean, you know, I want to talk to him now. I mean, like demanding. He's just like, tell her to leave. Tell her I don't want to talk to her, you know. And he wouldn't get up and talk with her. This would have been huge for Temujin's case. Not only did Michelle not get to testify... But Temujin also says he was not allowed to testify at trial, and he maintains that he always wanted to, and Dean did not let him, which, in fairness, isn't unusual advice for a defense attorney to give, but Temujin thinks it could have helped his case immensely if he'd taken the stand. After trial, jurors who were divided said that they wished that they would have heard Temujin's testimony. And Temujin could have rebutted what Prosecutor Cleland presented about him. The part that really concerns me 
is the lead prosecutor's involvement in this case and the things that were was done to get a conviction. Just reading the transcripts and to see the things that were brought out in court uh, to make Fred Freeman look like such a, a horrible person. For example, the unsubstantiated claims of rape and abuse, the unsubstantiated claims of being a ninja assassin, and putting a jailhouse informant on the stand who later recanted and said he was promised favors if he testified. In 1994, Philip Joplin came forward in a sworn affidavit and said he was given a deal to lie and say Temujin confessed to him while they were in holding. He says he was fully prepped on his testimony and met with the assistant prosecutor and lead detective Bounds frequently. Here's Joplin and journalist Bill Proctor in the Justice Incarcerated documentary. He shouldn't be in there for something that I said. He seemed genuinely relieved by the fact that he finally could tell and say what was true. What was disturbing was the fact that he knew he was saying and doing the right thing, but he also knew that the prosecutors could really care less. After trial, one juror told the Port Huron Times-Herald it was Joplin's testimony that convinced her of Temujin's guilt. Prosecutor Cleland is now a federal district judge in Port Huron. As far as the police investigation, Herb doesn't believe it was nefarious. He thinks the lead investigator, John Bounds, was just inexperienced. Uh, in knowing him... I, I really believe that he would not want to send an innocent person to prison for something they didn't do. But he, he really believed that Fred Freeman was the person who committed the murder, and he did his best to make a case against Fred Freeman. To me, tunnel vision is just as concerning because other suspects weren't looked into. And if Temujin is innocent, that means the real killer is still out there. In fact, Herb uncovered that days after the murder, there was a bolo, a be on the lookout, for a suspect who was not Temujin. Actually, this person was originally identified by the hypnotized star witness, Rene Gobian. And this suspect's plates were actually matched to being in the parking lot at the time by law enforcement. However, lead detective Bounds testified there were never any other suspects. It was always Temujin. What's really important to understand, because a lot of listeners have you know, the new technology, there was no internet in those days. There was no cell phones in those days. So you, know, you, you couldn't just get a big file on somebody in five minutes like you can now. There was no Scott in the picture. I didn't know what the guy looked like. I couldn't have known what kind of car he was driving. There's no way I could have known this guy was going to college what college, what classes he was taking. There were people coming into his workplace harassing him. I could never have known where he worked. Temujin believes the killer was someone who knew Scott and knew his whereabouts. Someone who would know that he would be in that parking lot at that time. Fortunately, unlike Detective Bounds and the Port Huron PD, Herb is looking at other suspects, and things are starting to make much, much more sense. One thing that can be said, Maggie, is that when you read the transcripts and the police report, I think that you'll see that there was very little investigation into Scott Mackle, um, his background, uh, 
where was he at uh, the days leading up to the murder? Where was he at the night before the murder? We don't have the answers to any of those questions. According to court records and Herb's investigation, multiple people have alleged that Scott Macklem was using and selling drugs. According to one person close to Scott that Herb spoke with, Scott's behavior started to change in the weeks before his murder, and this was possibly based on his association with a known drug dealer in the area. And this was crucial information hidden from the defense that Herb uncovered. And there are some incredibly damning claims by an ATF and Secret Service informant tying Scott Macklem to the local Port Huron drug trade that David Dean and other prominent officials were also allegedly a part of. Because remember, Dean had a drug problem he'd soon be suspended for. This informant says that lead detective Bounds knew all of this and covered it up. He's an individual that was a player in the drug trafficking at that time. And he knew, had a very, very close relationship with individuals that were in law enforcement and the criminal justice system. And uh, based in on Port in Port Huron, and ba- based on his um, information related to us, uh, there was a significant amount of corruption. This is retired FBI agent Hank Gillespie in the documentary Justice Incarcerated after meeting with the informant. And if this is true, this could be why Dean was appointed to take Temujin's case and did a reportedly terrible job representing him to keep the truth of the matter of Scott's murder hush. And there's still evidence that Herb wants tested that could point to this as a top theory. Files of blood that were withdrawn from Scott Maglum that were never tested for the presence of any type of a drug And as far as my knowledge, they never still have been tested for that. And what what would that show? Well, if he was using drugs at the time of when he was killed. And there's also the unidentified fingerprint on the box of bullets. This print was run through APHIS in 2008 and never matched to anyone. To Herb's knowledge, it should still exist in evidence and could be tested against new suspects. My heart goes out to the Macklin family for the murder of their son. And I've worked on this 13 years. Um, There's no doubt in my mind that Fred Freeman wasn't involved in the murder of their son. And I'm just trying to find out who did do it. Temujin says he was more hopeful than ever when a progressive governor, Gretchen Whitmer, and a progressive attorney general, Dana Nessel, were elected to office last year. Attorney General Nessel actually formed the new Michigan Conviction Integrity Unit, where Temujin's case is waiting for review. Now, the people that it's assigned to are phenomenal, but it's another year later and not a single interview, and I'm still sitting here. So, and this has been, this has been the, the, you know, the tone of this case for 34 years. Everybody's saying, what a shame, what a tragedy. And they're, they're still getting away with it. Nobody's trying to find Scott's killer. Nobody cares what happened to that poor kid. I don't care what he was doing. He did not deserve to be gunned down with a shotgun in broad light because he might have been selling some drugs to people who wanted drugs. Temujin thinks of Scott's son, who Crystal was still pregnant with at the time of the murder, and how he has grown up without a dad. And Temujin thinks about his own kids, how they have also grown up without a father, and how much he's lost in these 34 years. 
Temujin says he was initially offered plea deals, and if he took them, he'd have been out years ago. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think like... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a part of me all the time that I guess, I, you know, I, I wish that I just went in and said, yeah, I, I did it just so this hell would be over. I lost my wife of 23 years to cancer. You know, she was just the most amazing, incredible person. My grandparents died while I was in here. I mean, I could go on. Um, my kids grew up without me and went through hell because of it. Um, you know, three of them were a train wreck, to say the least. I love them all with all my heart, but they're still recovering. And so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess if I could go back in time and, and not live a lot of this hell, but then there's that party that goes, no, I'm not going to do that, you know. I'm not doing that. And um, I'm not doing that. So, you know, they're gonna, they may kill me in here, but I'm not lying to get anything for myself. Temujin and Paula, his fiance, have hoped that this year will be the last he spends in prison. The support behind Temujin is incredible. From elected officials to FBI agents to University of Michigan's Innocence Clinic to the Innocence Project to Herb, a cop from the force he was convicted by. So many people believe this case is egregious. And when he gets out, Temujin says he wants to work to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone ever again. You know, I've studied the issue intensely, obviously, and, and all the factors that lead to not just to wrongful convictions, but to social injustices. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know jack about racism. I knew nothing about uh, classism. Um, I really didn't understand the concepts of, you know, finance and the corporate structure and how government really functions and so on. So I devoted my life to study. And um, I think I can make a significant difference. I wrote both Governor Whitmer and Attorney General Nessel and have not heard back from the governor, but Attorney General Nessel's office said that they cannot comment. If you want to help Temujin, please write both the governor and attorney general of Michigan. You can also sign Temujin's change.org petition and write him. We have links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.